Hello, Ogeta Talofalaba. Warm Pacific greetings and welcome to the Pacific Wayfinder. My name is Elira Malifa. I am very excited today to be joined by two of the four inaugural scholarship recipients of the Australia Pacific Security College, Ms. GJ Milley and Mr. Michael Kaboni. Both GJ and Michael lecture in political science at the University of Papua New Guinea, and both are leading the way in the academic space with their research. GJ is looking at women, peace and security in the Pacific with a focus on Bougainville and Michael is looking at money laundering in Papua New Guinea. So much research to talk about, so let's get to it. GJ and Michael, thank you both for joining me from Moresby. How is the weather over there? Yeah, the weather is good. Uh, tropical PNG always sunny. Yeah, um, thank you, Aliara, for having us. Um, everything is good here. Awesome. So to get things started today, could you both please give our listeners a brief background on your work and what has brought you to a PhD scholarship with the PSC? GJ, I'll start with you. Okay. Um, so here at the University of Papua New Guinea, I teach a specific course called Gender Politics, um, um, which is a course in the whole political science program. And so th that pretty much speaks um, to what my interest area of interest lies in, um, in terms of um, um, women's rights, um, women's political rights, and as well as um, you know um, issues around gender-based violence. Um, so, in terms of um, the program with the Pacific Security College, I'm I'm so honored because I feel like it's a very um, a unique opportunity as well. And it gives me a different um, perspective um, to look at issues in, in terms of like human security. Sometimes we look at more traditional security roles and um, we neglect some of the most fundamental or important um, security issues that involves, you know, um just society and community in general so yeah I'm, I'm very excited to talk more about what i'm what i'll be doing or what i'm looking into um in my when i do commence my studies amazing thank you dj michael would you mind doing the same so uh i teach a course called politics of security so we look at all range of securities just traditional uh, threats from uh, another country, which would, which would be a traditional uh, view of security, but also uh, the evolving uh, landscape in uh, security studies, uh, where we look at terrorist organizations, uh, crime, international uh, crime syndicates, uh, and human security. So I might jump in uh, when we talk about the book and this year as well. Yeah, so, I applied for the uh, scholarship from the uh, security college uh, because, uh, well, first of all, they have, they have, I think, the largest uh, pool of Pacific experts at ANU. And there are a few uh, professors there who have written so much about security uh, and politics in Papua New And then the topic that I'm interested in is uh, money laundering, and, and I can talk about this when we go into that, but hence in Australia was referred to as the Cayman Islands, 
uh, investing invest in their money uh, in properties in, in camps. Yeah, so two reasons why uh, I went for this policy is because it's a very specific, uh, it has a very specific focus on security uh, in the Pacific, uh, plus they have uh, the largest pool of Pacific experts in the now that you're on a roll, Michael, would you mind um, would you mind talking a bit about the your your research? Is there a specific way that you've come to your research topic, um, and is there a reason why you want to focus right. on it? Right. So, much of the studies and research on corruption in Papua New Guinea has been on uh, public servants and public officials, and especially politicians stealing money. Uh, but then. By 2012, we learned that, well, it's been there, but at least that a serious investigation into money laundering uh, came to light in 2012 when the, there was an anti-corruption task force that was established in 2012 to look into corrupt practices uh, in Papua New Guinea and, and try to uh, prosecute these guys and, and retrieve the money uh, that was stolen. And what they realized is that there was about, I think, 11 uh, businessmen with properties in, in Cairns, in Australia. And uh, yeah, there, there was about 11.5 million uh, Australian dollars worth invested in uh, property market in Cairns. Uh, and in, in, in this was politicians alone, but if you take the Papua New Guinea investment in Cairns property market, uh, at the time was 1.2 billion. So the question was, where was this money coming from? And they realized that a big chunk was coming from the politicians. And they don't have that much money. They are not businessmen before they got in. Well, some were businessmen, but most were not uh, when they got into politics. So where was where all this money coming from. And they realized that they were stealing money from Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the money actually made its way into Ken's property market. So what was not clear was how did the money that they stole eventually get into the financial market uh, and then made its way to Australia? Because you just cannot take a bag of money down to, let's say, Cairns and try to buy properties, right? It gets into, the money first gets into banking uh, institutions in Papua New Guinea, and then it's transferred to Australian banks, and then from there they get to buy this property. So I looked at the literature, and there are three ways in which this thing works. So the first stage is called placement, where the money enters the PNG, the stolen money gets into PNG uh, financial markets. And then layering is uh, this process where this money is then covered up within the banking institutions to make it look like it's a legitimate proceed from a business arm uh, that this individual owns. And then integration, and then it exits uh, in hands and then gets into the property market. So my, well, interest was you know, how does it enter the PNG financial system or banks? Uh, is it because the policies are weak? And then how, you know, does the layering process take place? Uh, 
what kind of business do they use to cover this part? You know, is it uh, a car business, is it catering? You know, what, what kind of business do they, do they use? And then it gets into the Australian financial system and comes out as though it's a proceed from a legitimate uh, business that these individuals and MPs own. So it's basically looking at these three different layers uh, and seeing, you know, what role individuals play, like lawyers, you know, what role do lawyers play, what role do uh, banks play uh, in concealing this money, so the corrupt money comes out as though it's proceed from a legitimate business law. That's quite fascinating, Michael. DJ, do you mind um do you mind doing the same with your research? Yes, for sure. Um so my research, like I mentioned, um um my area of focus is looking at, you know, women in politics and just um equality for women and uh, looking at gender based violence and issues surrounding that. Um, so because um, um, with the um, Pacific Security College now, I've looked at, a, I think, a slightly different angle at what my in area of interest lies in. So um, I'm looking at peace, uh, women, peace and security. And then I'm, having, I'm looking at a case study of um, Bougainville. Um, so, you know, like I mentioned, um, human security is, is a pretty big issue. Um, and in terms of leadership for women in, in the Pacific, in Papua New Guinea, and in Bougainville, it's very, very important that um, women have to be like um, equal stakeholders or equal shareholders in terms of decision making. Um, so we see a big lack in that in, in, in PNG generally. So my area of interest, I think, stemmed when um, I went for um, the, uh, the observation for the referendum in 2018 in Bougainville. So I was very interested in um, the peace building process and especially in the involvement of women. Like, how did they do that? Because I, I also observe the community governments that they have established there. And so the women and men are both equal stakeholders in decision making in the community. And so I, upon seeing that, I felt that, oh, this is something really good that I could um, research into. So yeah, that's basically it. Um, I'll just be, um, yeah, so I'm, I have four kind of main questions that actually guide my research into into um, into Bougainville. So I'm just looking at um, why does gender and politics matter in terms of peace and security in Bougainville and in Papua New Guinea generally, and then how do these the community governments, it's unique for Bougainville. So in, in PNG, we do not have that. We have the local level governments, um, but I think it's framed a little bit differently. So how is the community governments um, aided women's um, participation in leadership and decision making? And also um, like 
how can Bougainville's future governance and Papua New Guinea's like national um, security policy be more inclusive? Because now we see in TNG, we don't have any um, female representation in at national parliament. In other areas, I think we're doing a little bit okay, but in terms of national parliament, we do not have any female voices. And Bougainville does, um, it does give a good example of how the inclusion of women can bring about change because they're in partnership with the men as well in, in decision making. Um, so that's something that I'd really be interested to look into and I'm looking forward to that as well. And yeah, and so how also, um, how can I contribute um, to the literature in the field of women, peace and security um, in, in the Pacific and in, in Papua New Guinea and Bougainville generally? Yeah. Thanks, DJ. Um, Michael, I had it in mind to ask you about how your research feeds into a discussion around transnational crime, but I see you've already started to analyze that. So I'll ask you instead about how this, uh, what looks like a syndicate, is feeding back into domestic crime in PNG. Syndicate is, I think, a, a reasonable way to put it, how this operation works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we know there are millions and millions of money that are lost to corruption in Pakistan. We just had the minister for just used to be minister for, for police, Brian Freeman, mm -hmm. but has been recently moved to minister for justice. Mm -hmm. so we had him come talk to the students uh, last week. And he estimated uh, that three billion is lost uh, to corruption, three billion you know, uh, mm -hmm. is lost to corruption uh, annually in Papua New Guinea. Now, Papua New Guinea's uh, budget for 2020 was around 19 billion, uh, but it was six billion deficit budget, which means we only had like 13 billion uh, money and six billion was borrowed. So we had 13 billion uh, in revenues, uh, which made up our budget. Three billion of that. Uh, according to the Minister for Justice, is lost through corruption. That's a lot of money. Now, not only does it, you know, when three billion is lost, it's not kept in a suitcase somewhere. That three billion find, finds its way into the banking system. That's the only way you can keep three billion. Uh, when you steal it, you cannot keep it in a, in a in a basket somewhere. Mm. But, uh, yeah, so it, it makes it interesting. So the question is, how does this three billion get into the uh, financial market, uh, into the banks? Mm. So that's the PNG uh, aspect of this party, is mm. how does it get into the PNG uh, financial systems? But uh, mm. this three billion, then most of it, Finds its way to Australia uh, into into Ken's property market. That's the kind of international level. And and look, corruption in Papua New Guinea is not a new thing. Uh, Australians know really well, uh, you know, the the magnitude of the problem we have in this country. So if you have a politician coming to Ken's with billions of kina or uh, 
millions of kina and he's trying to transfer his money to an Australian bank so he could find uh, buy properties in Ken's market. You should be asking them questions. Mm. How did you get this money? Uh, what is your financial you know, trans- transaction record? Do you have a business that is enough to generate five million? Yeah, in a couple of months. Do you have that? So, so was that records. If, if a lawyer, and it's interesting because uh, an Australian lawyer who practices in Papua New Guinea is now uh, before the courts uh, trying to explain his part in the 19, uh, sorry, I think it's 90 million Australian dollars mm. uh, that was stolen from Okedi. Yeah. And this lawyer played a part in it. So, yeah, so asking these lawyers, uh, where did your client get this money? So you can say it's kind of a syndicate because lawyers help with that, banks help with that, not only Papua New Guinea uh, lawyers and banks. The fact that money gets to Ken's, there is an international aspect to this stuff. Yeah? Nice. Thank you, Michael. Uh, this question is for the both of you, and it's something that I've asked the other PhD candidates we've had on the podcast. Could you both please jump ahead and describe the projected outcomes of your research? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, I do hope um, to, like, for my research, eventual outcome would be probably to inform or, yeah, inform policymaking. Um, because, you know, human security issues are like, there's so many things that you can look at, but I'm specifically looking at the main issue right now, which I, I feel like in, in terms of Papua New Guinea is, you know, getting women into parliaments, um, having that equal representation. Um, and I feel like Bougainville has a really, really good, um, a good model and um i think part of the 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 reasons why our current parliament and previous parliaments have made decisions or made um yeah made decisions as they have in terms of um like the 22 reserve seats and now they're talking about the five regional seats it's because they're misinformed they don't really know um what uh, temporary special measures, what it constitutes. It's just, I think, a lot of misinformation. So I, I hope that, you know, my general research will, will contribute, you know, towards information and also in policymaking. Um, and in terms of Bougainville, you know, they're starting out new and there's a lot of, you see now that going into a lot of new ventures, a lot of big ideas and a lot of, um, yeah, it's an exciting time for them, but I feel like um, in terms of having um, women in decision making, they have made a lot of track, but there's still more that can be done and explored and a, a lot more that women can contribute in terms of um, development um, and partnership in decision making. So I just hope that my research would, um, the immediate outcome would be to influence um, policy making. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, GJ. Um, and you, Michael? Can I just comment on GJ's? Yeah, sure. Uh, I've done a, a bit of work on, on Bougainville and especially the role of women during the crisis, right? And I'll 
Yeah, engage with the liquids. I am for DJ's research. I think one of the immediate impacts is that they had a referendum, but and that does not necessarily mean they will gain independence. It's still within the parliament's uh, domain to decide that. That was part of the peace argument. Mm. So can the parliament will get to decide. So the next phase is called consultations. So these consultations are going on between Papua New Guinea uh, representatives and uh, Bougainville representatives. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so when I speak to Bougainville women, they, they, they feel that they are excluded in the consultation. And even my conversations with women, what are women MP? So if you're an MP, you automatically have access to this negotiating table, which means for Bougainville women have automatic access to uh, the negotiating table because they are MPs. The three mm -hmm. reserve uh, women who won the reserve that it is talked about was the one that won the open seat, so therefore. But in, do they speak in these uh, consultations? And the answer is no. Uh, the last consultation, only one woman was allowed to speak. Three others were there as observers, which means they observed, but they didn't speak. So they've gained something that is almost impossible to achieve in Papua New Guinea, which is to have three women resources. And this is something they need to sustain. Uh, in a male-dominated society, you can easily lose that. So, Bougainville society is a bit interesting. It's a uh, matrilineal. Yeah, matrilineal is the male, yeah, kind of male, uh, sorry, female. Yeah, female owned the land. So, yeah, they kind of traditionally they are very, very influential standing, but in formal government institutions, they kind of don't. And it was the post crisis. Uh, that they got to get these pre receptions. Yeah, so studies like GJ's will actually kind of keep reminding people of the role that women play. Uh, and this consultation will go on for a few years. I know that Bogan Williams are like, yeah, we'll get our independence in 2025. Uh, that might not happen. And the consultations will go on. So that this kind of research is important. It reminds people of the role that women play uh, and keep this, this pressure of having women in a negotiating table until whenever uh, both, uh, well, Papua New Guinea and Bougainville decide on whatever the political settlement is mm -hmm. uh, for Bougainville. All right, so let's get what Gigi said. I think that's really interesting. Uh, thanks, Michael. DJ, how do you think you might be looking at that in your research? Yeah, I mean, I yes, that will be something that I'll be looking at because obviously it's something very recent and very current. And it's something that is going on in a lot of conversations within Bougainville itself and in, in Papua New Guinea. So like, like Michael said, yes. Um, like he was also conducting um, the focus group um, for his research, one of the researches that he was doing. And it, it, it's very interesting too when he talks about how even though there are women in the House of Representatives, like 
they still play more kind of like submissive roles where they don't they're not given the opportunity to really participate actively mm -hmm. um so yeah it will definitely be something that i will incorporate or put into my research michael you didn't talk about the outcomes for your research. What are the outcomes that you see for your research? I was just going to let you yeah. pass. <laughs> yeah, okay. So outcomes. There is a, an organization that was, I think, established a few years ago called Financial Intelligence Unit. So it's established within the Papua New Guinea Central Bank. And their role is to develop legislations, well, not develop legislations, but advise government uh, and propose, you know, changes to legislations to minimize uh, money laundering patronage. So I'll say two things that my research might help in is first inform the public. Uh, you know, when the results comes out or finding comes out, so it can generate this discussion on why this thing is serious. A 13 billion lost every year is not in, in a country that actually struggles to generate revenue. And sorry, not 13 billion, but 3 billion lost every year is a lot of money. So we talk about these little things, you know, 1 million not accounted for, and we get stuck into this. Well, billions are lost, and we are not even talking about. It. So I'm hoping that you know, through this research and the findings, that we could generate this discussion so people become aware uh, and ask questions, hold their leaders accountable, things like that. That's the first one. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second one is uh, there is a financial intelligence unit now established within the central bank. So in a few. Uh, coming years, they'll be driving for legislation, stronger legislations. Uh, they'll just recently called up Bank of PNG to explain fraudulent activities. Sorry, not Bank of PNG. BSP. BSP. Uh, the Financial Intelligence Unit has now asked the bank to come out and explain some fraudulent uh, activities that they suspect is taking place and they are accommodating it. Mm. So, they are starting to do this job. So I'm hoping that, you know, for this study, I'll be not only looking at, you know, how the money enters the formal market systems and, and kind of uh, appears to be uh, a legitimate profit from a, you know, business somewhere, but also looking at best practices uh, around the world or developing countries and how they minimize uh, fraudulent activities. And uh, hopefully that will help uh, with the work of the Financial Intelligence Unit in proposing stronger uh, legislations and policy frameworks so that it could minimize how this betting money gets into the financial market. So now that we've actually got Michael's proposed outcomes for his research, I wanted to ask you both, as Pacific academics, how important do you think it is for Pacific people to be undertaking this research? Uh, GJ, we'll start with you. Yep, so I can go ahead with that. Um, so I feel that it's, it's very important because firstly, we bring that 
that local context or perspective to academia and especially to research and then the outcome of research, which is obviously literature that will um, contribute to that. Um, you know, I feel like it's, it's, it's a big, like big gap because we do have specific researchers, but not too many of us that can be able to contribute. So sometimes we see, um, like I, I do get um, a little bit frustrated because I see that we have uh, fellow researchers, but who are not local that do come and write about some issues or some situation, whatever it is that is happening, but um, it kind of, they don't have that context, the local context um, or background knowledge to be able to really articulate what is happening. So it's purely scholarship for them, but for us, it's something that is, um, it's, it's personal because it's a, a place in a community that we are a big part of and it's, it's our identity as well. So yeah, that's um, something that I hope to, you know, to build literature in the area that I'm focused on in, in the Pacific. Yeah, I totally agree. Michael, would you have any thoughts on that? Why is it important for a Pacific academic such as yourself to be undertaking your research? Yeah, all right. So we bring, we bring Pacific voice, uh, our lived experience. Uh, yes, yeah, something that you, let's say if you're in Australia and you are conducting a research in Papua New Guinea, uh, you don't understand the culture, you don't understand, maybe you understand the literature, mm. uh, but you don't understand the culture, you don't understand why people behave the way they do, uh, why they steal, yeah? Uh, or why there are not enough women in parliament. Uh, yeah, and then, you know, why are people not voting women? Even women not voting women can in. Yeah, so uh, you, as an Australian, you have a limited uh, access, uh, but also limited understanding on why people begin. You know, the way. And for Papua New Guineans, we, we understand why. Uh, as, as a Pacific Islander, let's say we understand why, you know, things happen the way they do uh, in the Pacific. So we, we bring that uh, perspective uh, that you probably wouldn't have as in Australia, I mean, as in New Zealand or anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I'm happy for this, but happy for uh, this research fund that is allowing us to one funding of studies. Yeah. But uh, we also bring this, yeah, unique aspect, lived experience. Thank you, Michael. Um, okay, before we finish up, I have one last question, and that is, what role do you both think Australia has in furthering the agenda for both of your research areas? Yeah, so I just, like, I, I think it goes a little in line with the question that we just talked about. I feel that, um, you know, Australia obviously has, like, this big brother status in the Pacific and for Papua New Guinea as well. And... <sighs> I just feel like, you know, um, 
most of the development um, projects or development agendas that they do have to try to push, it should have like a focus of having local solutions to local problems so that there's more effectiveness in how you reach an end goal or an, an, an outcome. So um, we do recognize that Australia is a very important partner, but in order to be very successful in whatever it's rolling out, um, you know, in, like in terms of um, my research and in terms of women it, getting into politics and into parliament or addressing issues like gender-based violence or sorcery accusation related violence we have to look at local solutions to all of these problems yeah so we don't have like you know out of something that is not just even contextualized to um our current situation and bringing these kinds of um you know things that we think that will work here but that would not so yeah just just basically that Agree. And do you, how about you, Michael? How can, what role does Australia play in furthering the agenda for your area? Yeah, well, I talked about how uh, politicians spill money and buy properties in Australia. So it's very much an Australian issue as it is a happening in an issue because trans, uh, national crime is taking place right there. Sorry, Australian backyard uh, in France. And uh, you don't want you don't want to be this country uh, that is acting as the Cayman Islands for the past. That's not a really that's not a reputation to be proud of. And on that note, I would like to thank you both for joining me today on this episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. Miss JJ Milley and Mr. Michael Carboni, many thanks to you both for sharing your knowledge. That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. You can find a link to this episode on our website, pacificsecurity.net. You can always find us on Facebook at Australia Pacific Security College or on Twitter at PSC underscore ANU. And you can listen to the Pacific Wayfinder on Google, Apple and Spotify podcasts. The theme song that you are listening to is Tabaran by Not Drowning Waving. And please tune in next time for more discussions on the Pacific Wayfinder. <laughs>